Hello, and welcome to the Golden Thread Conversations with Judy Murdoch. Today, I am so pleased to be talking to Laura Gates Lupton. Laura is a financial feminist and life and money coach for talented, hardworking, overgiving solopreneurs. She helps her clients to untangle old beliefs and fears about money, simplify their businesses, and smash their personal glass ceilings. As a former psychotherapist, Laura brings a unique combination of emotional and practical support to her clients. Her approach is based on a three-pillar framework for multiplying income without increasing working hours, breaking the habit of overworking and growing financial identity and amplifying impact. So Laura, welcome. Hi, Judy. Thank you. It's really good to have you here today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I've been looking forward to it all week. Yeah, me too. The um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because your the thing that you you help women with is such a I I I, I want to say potent, but it's also just sort of. Um, do you think it's one of those things where it's something a lot of women struggle with, but we don't really talk about so much? Yes, I think yeah. I think that's it exactly. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think women don't talk about it so much? There's so much shame around money. It also happens that most of my clients are at midlife. And so there's this feeling with the individual of, I should have figured this out by now. And everybody else looks like they're doing pretty well. So they're not struggling. I'm struggling, but it's somehow it's my problem, my fault. And, and so it's embarrassing. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, certainly for me. Yeah. But a lot of people, when they talk to me, one of the things that they say is, oh, it's such a relief just to talk to somebody. <laughs> like yeah. before we've even gotten into the work, but just to be able to unburden how they're feeling and what they're dealing with. Yeah. No, I agree. I, there's a lot of, um, I mean, for a very long time now, um, as long as I can remember, I have seen a lot of articles and just there's a lot of content out there for women about managing their finances, but there isn't anything out there around why women have resistance to doing it to begin with. I agree. I agree. And I always say that if a personal finance book could solve your problems, then nobody would have these problems. Right. But, but we do tend to turn to them over and over again, thinking that, okay, this next one's going to be the one you know, it's like, I'll, I'll, I'll just follow what they tell me to do in this book and then everything will be fine. But it's missing a whole level around the emotional stuff and the psychological stuff. Yeah, agreed. I think my, my experience has certainly been um, in my own coaching work that um, the, the resistance, sort of the underlying resistance or whatever the reasons are that keep us from taking action to begin with, um, <laughs> Honestly, I think that's where the more interesting, um, that's a more interesting level to work with people at. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, like if we were doing what intellectually knew was the right thing to do, you know, we would all have perfect lives. We would. Right? <laughs> yeah. But we're human beings and we're complicated. Right. And we wouldn't need a new, like how, I don't know how many come out a year, you know, all these like slew of self-help books. We wouldn't yeah. need them if we, yeah. yeah, if we could just read one or two and be like, okay, got it. Exactly. So tell me a little bit, you know, this is called the Golden Thread Conversation. Mm -hmm. And 
I like talking with people who have made shifts in their career. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes the shifts they make may not make sense um, at the time, but when they look back, they see that there is a thread that connects everything pretty much from, you know, maybe from the time when they were quite, quite young and just getting started. So you started as a psychotherapist and what kind of like, what were the, like the currents or things that moved you to make the change that you did? I was a psychotherapist for about 20 years, um, not continuously because I took some time off when I had babies, but I, I loved it. I loved my clients. Um, I loved the work, a lot of it. But over time, I no longer bought into the pathology model oh. that so much of psychotherapy is based on. And I was really at the, the last job I had, I was working in an agency and I had clients I really adored, mm -hmm. but the paperwork the treatment plans, everything is geared around this pathology model. Yes. And I am more, I became over time more of a health oriented person. And so it felt really out of integrity for me. Mm -hmm. So that was part of it. The other is I was being paid terribly. I was doing very hard work, sometimes seeing seven or eight clients in a day, often six in a row. And clients would come in and talk to me a lot, often about their money, which I really enjoyed. And and I would find out that they were earning way more than I was. <laughs> and they would, <laughs> sometimes they hadn't even graduated from college. <laughs> so, wow. you know, and that really chafed. It really did. And meanwhile, you know, I had little kids at home whom I really wanted to be with. And my husband and I split, we, we each worked part-time. So I wasn't full-time at the time. I was working three days a week and he was working two for the same agency. He's also a psychotherapist. Okay. So one of us was with our kids. But it's, at the end of the day, I used to wonder like, what am I really doing? Like, I'm I'm perpetuating this pathology model by did working in so? this system. Yeah, really? I did. I felt that way. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, because, like, I wouldn't say it to clients necessarily, but all the meetings we would have with the staff, we were, I was on a clinical team, which I loved. I loved my team. But mm -hmm. that's how we talked about the cases, was through the lens of the pathology model. That was what was expected and accepted. Well, and Go Can ahead. you just say a little bit more? I mean, like when you say pathology model, I'm nodding my head, but um, I really like, I could you just say a little bit more about what what is that and how does it flavor the work, like the work therapists do? Sure. Well, for example, you have to diagnose everybody. You right. can't, and you have to go for, because of insurance, right. in order to get them to pay for it, you have right. to go often for a higher, the highest level of diagnosis that fits the client. Got it. Okay. So when I first started out, when I was young, you could just diagnose everybody with an adjustment disorder, which oh, is wow. basically something's happened in your life, you're adjusting to it, and insurance companies would pay for it. But toward the end, they wouldn't. And so, wow. So that's that's one piece of it. The other is just the lens at how we would look at the clients. It was all around what their problems were, what they were struggling mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. with particularly persistent problems. You know, and diagnosing oh, people yeah. with on that too, around like personality disorders and right. and it just didn't sit well with me. There were so many times when I could see the potential in a client and knew that if we could just work long enough, they could get to a certain place. But then when I would present it in a team, people would be talking about the horrible neglect that they had experienced as a child or all the Yeah. And I just did not want to focus there. 
Not that it wasn't important to acknowledge for sure. I get it. Yeah. Just did not want to focus there or to make people feel like they were damaged in a way that they could never recover from. Yeah. Yeah. That was often the tone of how we talked about people. Yeah. Well, having done a lot of therapy with people I consider to be really good therapists, you know, people who are, you know, genuinely caring, um, caring people who really wanted to help. And my experience has been that therapy can be really helpful, especially when you're in a, a place of a lot of pain where you just do not see a way forward. And I think therapists can be really, really helpful if only just to listen simply to listen to you. Um, I know that once you kind of, you kind of address what is acute and now you're sort of dealing more with the kind of the stuff that everybody has to deal with, whatever that might look like, um, like you're, you're, you're functioning. Mm -hmm. Okay. On a day-to-day basis, but now you're at a point in your life where you want to make a significant change. You want, you know, you want to kind of push yourself. And in my experience, that's where therapy doesn't really help anymore. Um, which is why I became so interested in coaching. Um, because I thought coaching is oriented towards creating rather than sort of doing a, um, well, I don't want to say emergency room, but certainly where you're in a, in a position where like you're having, you're having a hard time just getting through your day. Yep. I totally agree. I very specifically remember one client whom I adored, worked with for her with for three years. And she came in one day and said, this is a therapy client. And she said, okay, so I have a very clear understanding now through our work together of why I've gotten to this place of why I do the things I do but I don't know how to do anything different. Like that's where I want our work to focus now. And mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, that's great. But I didn't have the tools to do it. Because like, there wasn't any, because it didn't fit like one of the codes in the diagnostic book, right? Right. Oh right. My and, and my training was very psychodynamic. It was very Freudian. It was, yeah. I went to Smith College School for Social Work, uh, which is a fabulous school. <laughs> I'm not knocking it. Um, but I wasn't yeah. trained for like short-term models of therapy, which are more solution focused. I didn't have any of that training. So Laura, did you, did you like investigate positive psychology? Because that's something that I've done a little research into. Yeah. I didn't learn about positive psychology till later. Okay. And I think I actually learned about it in coach training and wished I'd had that available to me sooner. I just didn't know about it. Yeah. I, I looked into it because it, it, it plays sort of hand in hand with coaching, which is something I really like about it. I didn't want to go to school to get a degree in it, but I I feel like it has, it's created a lot of positive things in our world. That makes sense to me. Yeah. That makes sense. So, so I, you, you were, you had your psycho, your psychotherapy practice and you were very clear that there were some things that you wanted to do, you were not able to do. So that led you to coaching. Yes. Not quite directly. Okay. Um, I hired a coach. Ah. Because I, I was trying to figure out what to do. And there was a woman in my on my Facebook 
you know, sphere. I didn't really know her, but I knew she'd been to coach training. Her name was also Laura. Um, we often exchanged pleasant messages and I thought, well, I'll reach out to her and see what she has to say. And so we did a few sessions and as I was trying to, like, she had me identify the things I loved about my work and that was really helpful. Mm -hmm. And as I was thinking about ways to, to find work that still use those skills, it suddenly dawned to me like, oh, she's doing it. (laughs) (laughs) She's using the same skills. Um, And so I asked her like about her coach training and, and she told me, and I ended up going to the same program that she went to. Uh, it just, once that my eyes opened and I realized like, oh, there's this possibility that felt like the natural choice to make. Now at the same time, I have to admit, I didn't tell anybody. I went off to coach training. I chose a program that had three in-person modules and then in between online. And when I went away for the first two modules, I didn't tell anybody I didn't tell I told one person at work who was a close friend, but nobody else. <laughs> and my family that? knew um, because I didn't think they'd accept it. Mm-hmm. And it it felt like such a huge shift for me. I wasn't in a place where I wanted to defend it. Yeah. Like I still I needed it. to embody it for myself. I wouldn't have yep. used that language at the time, but now that I'm looking at it, I see it that way. Yeah. And and I just did not want to have to um, explain it or defend it. I really get that, Laura. I I admit that even now, um, although I consider what I do to be coaching, um, I feel very, I feel a lot of resistance in, in sharing with, or like even calling myself a coach because, um, I started my coach training in 2000, 2001. Yeah. Long time ago, long, long time ago. And, um, at that point, um, coaching, like the, the, I like the idea that there, you even, there even was a profession, if you want to call that called coaching, um, was just kind of becoming more visible. And I know during the, um, I, I started to practice and did coaching for about 12 years, trying, like trying to quite a variety of different things. What I saw in the coaching profession was that there were there was a percentage of people in the profession who um, kind of made it more into uh, what I would call motivational, you know, kind of more of the self the, the self help, motivational, um, very very surfacey, very surfacey, lots of promises. Um, very, very short on any kind of real delivery, even though it probably made people, um, it, it sounded exciting, you know, and I felt, I mean, I could feel myself like physically like cringing, you know, when I saw those kinds of, um, that kind of the marketing and advertising and promotion for it. And so to some, you know, and so for, for me, there's kind of this, I, this desire to to almost say kind of like, I'm a coach, but I'm not like those coaches, <laughs> you know? So, and, and, and that, that is, that's my thing that, that is me, my own, my own issues with like embodying mm-hmm. what it means to really be a coach, because I also know that, um, coaches I've, I've worked with lots of coaches and coaches are, can make enormous positive changes in the lives of their clients. 
And, Absolutely. and I'm certainly one of them, you know, um, so I'm very grateful to the coaches who have profoundly transformed my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, there's the piece around when you're a therapist, you don't have to explain what you do, exactly. but when you're a coach, you do, <laughs> you know, it's like, if you say, if you say to mm -hmm. somebody, I'm a life coach, especially people have all kinds of preconceived ideas about what that means. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. That's yeah. right. So did you know when you became a life coach that you wanted to focus on, um, I guess, like, would you, I don't know, would you call it financial well-being? Like, how would you, how would you, what would you call that? I think of it more as helping people earn more money. <laughs> um, it is financial well-being. I haven't really thought of it that way. I love that you said that. So that's something for me to consider when I'm in my messaging. Um, but really, I'm, I like to put it in the practical terms so yeah, that people understand, sure. you know, that mostly what we're going to focus on is earning more money and getting comfortable with money because mm. it's not just about the earning. It has to be, there's all the psychological piece that goes into it, which is really more about the comfort because otherwise you're just going to go back to that level that you're more comfortable with that you've been at before that you've, you know, that glass ceiling, you're going to get back Isn't under that it interesting? again. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Like people that, that people have some sort of an internal, I don't know, what would you call that? Where thermostat. Like a thermostat, yeah. Yep. And they just can't get past that. And that that's, is that's why people who win the lottery blow it because it's not how they see themselves. It's part of identity. That thermostat is part oh, of identity. Interesting. You know, I, when I was a therapist, I had several clients who inherited money and just blew through it with shocking speed. It's It was fascinating to watch, but also painful. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it's just because it's not who they see themselves to be. So that's part of the work is growing the identity. It's a big part of the work, actually. It sounds like an incredibly challenging thing to do, actually, because identity is such a deep rooted thing for us. Yeah. And it, I think it's almost impossible to do on your own. Yes. Honestly, it's like you really need it doesn't have to be a coach or a therapist, but it could be a circle of friends who are working on it together because mm -hmm. part of internalizing the change in identity as having a witness. Yes. Like somebody else who also sees that and can name it and can affirm that yes, you are changing and growing. You are becoming this new identity. You know, so that makes me think about our culture in general. And it might be American culture in particular because Americans are incredibly individualistic. You know, we're very focused on the individual, us. And one of the things that I find personally is that I find myself like completely agreeing with you that we can't, you can't do that yourself, but you know what? We can't do most things by ourselves. This is true. And I think that in our culture, um, I don't want to say it's a, a pathology of our culture, but there's a real issue, I think, in, in our culture, I certainly feel it where I just feel sort of like so much more can be accomplished in community. I agree. Uh, our mutual friend, Linda Katz, she's the first person I ever heard to say this when she when she did it so resonated me, with me. She was talking about how we take societal problems and turn them into individual problems because we put them in the hands of the individual. It's like it's your responsibility to solve this. When really, if we could solve them on a bigger level, so many people wouldn't be struggling in the way that they are. Right. I, I think that um, 
I think that when we talk about community, we can we can also lapse into this idea that community is tribe or it is family. And I believe that there are a lot of good things. You know, I mean, we are tribal creatures. And I think there are a lot of really good things about tribe. And I think that there are some really bad, bad things about tribe. And when people start getting nostalgic for, you know, back in the day when, you know, like dad went off and earned the money and the kids stayed home with mom. And it was just, that was like, you know, that was utopian. And it's like, yeah. And there was all kinds of abuse that was happening. Mm -hmm. And just because you've got a multi-generational family living in your home, that does not mean that, you know, some of those people aren't unbelievably toxic and, mm -hmm. you know, messing everybody up. So I, I think, I like to think that we can create community, but it can be a much more positive um, helpful community. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm very cautious about that. You know, when people start getting into the whole community thing too. Right. Well, yeah. it, there's a lot of black and white thinking where it's like all good or all bad. And it's so much more nuanced than that. It really does take creating community consciously and, and not in a static way. I think it, you're constantly creating it. Agreed. I think it's a, I, I like to think it's, it's like an, a, it's a living organism, mm -hmm. you know, made up of living organisms. I like that too. Yeah. Constantly. You know, Judy, sorry. I realized I didn't answer your question, which was that you asked me if I'd always wanted to do financial coaching <laughs> and we got off onto the other topics. So I wanted to go back and answer it, which is yeah. no, I did not. Um, when I first became a coach, I didn't really have a niche. I kind of waited to see who would show up and mostly who came to me were writers because I had been a writer myself. I, I'm a mystery writer, although I haven't written any in years. Um, and I have short stories published. I have three unpublished novels. But I had a whole community of writers. And so uh -huh. they were the ones who came for my initial offerings and showed up. And so I, sort of by default, I just became a writing coach for seven years. Wow. And then I transitioned to money coaching. So what got you sucking into the money coaching? I loved talking to the writers about money. I mean, it's something that oh, writers yeah. often struggle with. Totally. They're so underpaid. Yes. Um, and I got tired of focusing on productivity because a lot of the work we were doing is around just getting writers to write. Yeah. And I, you know, after seven years, that gets a little old. I did have a class that I taught that I absolutely loved. I taught it a dozen times. That was about productivity mostly. Yeah. Um, but, but I got tired of it. And so I realized as I thought about it, kind of went through the same process that the coach Laura had me do before, which is to write out all the things that I really liked about what I was currently doing mm -hmm. and then transitioned from there into the money coaching. Cause I realized that's what was showing up over and over again in the list. I loved helping writers make more money. So did you find there was any pushback when you began making that transition? A little bit. Um, yeah, a little bit. There were yeah. people who, for example, wanted to take the class again and I didn't want to teach it again. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was kind of tired of it after 12 times around, even though I really loved it. But the last time I taught it, I remember thinking like my heart is not in this anymore. I just didn't feel the same and I just didn't want to keep doing it. So there was a little bit, I mean, some of the writers stayed on as clients, but we focused more on their money. 
Um, mm-hmm. I just ended with one of, one of them in December. Actually, she was with me for ten years. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so it was quite a ride for the two of us because when she first started with me, she was struggling with getting her writing done. She didn't have an agent, and now she has an agent, and she's got several books out on sub. And that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean that's so, absolutely fantastic. That makes my heart feel really happy. Yeah, because I really I love seeing people, creators and makers, earning money. Exactly. For their gifts. That makes me feel very, very happy. Me too. So you, but you currently, you've changed your focus again a little bit and you're now working with people who are therapists. I have always worked with therapists, actually. That was like a small subset of people. I had the bigger group of writers and then I had the smaller group of therapists. Okay. And I actually taught a class for a while for therapists, uh, teaching them coaching skills. Interesting. Yep. I did that for a while and I've helped lots of therapists transition to private practice because mm. when you're a therapist who works in an agency, you don't see the money at all. It's like, there's a billing department. Somebody else does all the insurance stuff. You have to fill out the forms, but somebody else handles all of that. But when you're in private practice, suddenly you're the one setting the rates. You're the one enforcing the policies and you're the one collecting the money. And that is a new thing for people that they often don't anticipate how much they're going to struggle with. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I, I used to be, when I was doing technical content, so I worked on, created technical content, um, did training and things like that. Um, for a while, I would work with, they're not, they, they're, kind, I guess, the equivalent of an agency. But basically, it was it was a group that companies contacted when they needed a particular, somebody with a specific cluster of skills, whether it mm-hmm. was coding or doing something else. And it was really nice in some ways for somebody else to do all the work and to find me, you know, to find me um, gigs. Um, But as you said, it was, it it, it was a lot more profitable to do it on my own, but it took time to get Mm -hmm. to the point where I had enough contacts that I could do it on my own. Yeah. And the thing with therapists is that most of us go into it not to make money, but because we want to help people, at least, you know, most female therapists and also a lot of male therapists. Um, But then when you go out in private practice, suddenly, like, you don't have a salary, like, you're the one who has to provide the salary, and you have to. You're the one who has to find the clients, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here where I live, and not all the therapists I've worked with have been local, but many have, we'll never have enough therapists. (laughs) It just doesn't seem to matter. Um, There are lots of clients. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, but you have to, you can have a full roster of clients and not be making enough money if you're not handling your business well. Tell me a little bit about, I want to call the, I'll call them issues. So what are like, and and you've alluded to these a little bit too. um, What, what are the issues that a client will typically present to you and how do you help? The issues, the presenting issues, to use a therapeutic term, um, tend to vary. There are some common themes. One of them is being a woman at midlife-ish, you know, it's kind of a a broad range of ages, who has been supported by somebody else, Mm. um, having either raised kids or maybe not, but usually they have a partner or a husband who is the primary breadwinner, and they want to change that like for whatever reason, whether it's because he is talking about retiring 
whether it's because she feels bad that she's never done it and he's had the burden, or maybe she's thinking, I might want a divorce. Yeah. Wow. So that's a really common one is to come in and say like, this is how much money I've made over my lifetime. Clearly I can't live on it. I need new skills and I need to figure this out. That's very interesting because my husband has been the breadwinner in our household. You know, he, he does, he's an engineer. He's um, he does database design and he just makes so much more than I could ever make. Mm -hmm. And so it all, it's always made sense for him to be the one who is working, has a nine to five job, has insurance and, and everything because he's in demand, but he wants to retire. Mm -hmm. And I want him to be able to retire mm -hmm. because he works really hard. And I want to, I myself would like to begin to bring money in so that we're not just living on our savings. And right. I, I guess I'm not ready to retire. Right, which is really common. In part because for women, often we've spent a couple of decades doing something else, like whether it's taking care of the home and the husband and supporting his endeavors out in the world or raising children, mm -hmm. we've been busy. And then we hit this certain phase, you know, empty nest or just exactly. life in general, where we right. suddenly have the energy and the time to commit to making money, to like having more of a different kind of career or more of a career or, you know, a business. Most of my clients mm -hmm. are in business for themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's there. It's also that identity piece there too, around like who am I now, at this phase of life, and what am I going to yeah. do with this chunk of time and this energy that I still have? It's like right. I'm not not ready to retire. You know, I haven't been working like maybe like your husband, for example, and want a different kind of life. Right. I want to shift into this now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, it it seems to me that. I mean, I can really relate to some of the things you said, for example, although I kind of manage the household finances, mm -hmm. I don't, I do not bring in a lot of money into the household, nor do I manage our investments. Mm -hmm. And so I feel personally, and I have an MBA. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's not like I don't understand these things. You know, yeah. I'm not I'm not a not a novice when it when it comes to investments and that type of thing. But I don't really touch it. And the other thing is yeah, I'm really curious about I'm curious about the identity piece, Laura, because that feels like it feels like a tough nut to me. You know, mm. as we said identity is a really I think kind of like a, like a something that's like deeply embedded in us. So could you share some of the things it could be just like practical things you do to help um help your clients begin to I don't know, I I guess like kind of I, I don't know if the right metaphor is that they their identities break or you start to gently push them, but but like, what are some things you do to help your clients? Yeah, I think of it more as growth rather than breaking. Um, okay. And I and part of it is I often talk with clients about how I see this phase of life, this at midlife as a developmental phase that we don't talk about. Very so, very again yes very true. 
I think all of us, no matter what we're choosing to do at the time, are in this developmental phase where we can, it, it, we need to look at who we are and what we want to do and who we want to be. And what society hands us is like, you know, don't fight aging, be sure to fight aging, like make that your focus and right? pray for yeah. grandchildren. Um, yeah. So part of it is I talk about that. I try to normalize for people that this is because they come in questioning. They feel like there's something wrong with them because you look around, you don't really see it. Yeah. Is like, this is, it's normal. This is the task of a developmental phase. Yeah. And you've been through other developmental phases and you've changed your identity okay. before multiple times. Mm-hmm. You've grown it from where you were to where you got to. And that's all we're doing now. And I yeah. want to do it in a conscious way though. So one of the things I have people do is create an I am statement. Like the, it's the statement of who they want to be, like what mm. they're doing mm. in this phase. Like and if, yeah. if they're artistic at all, I'll have them like draw it or, you know, like put it up somewhere so they can look at it every day. Interesting. What you, the thing that you made me think about too, is that I I think that we're we're in a like in a larger sense we're in a time where what we think about as retirement has completely shifted and changed and it it's so the way we used to think about it is is pretty irrelevant True. so it, the in the old days it was like you worked and you retired and you enjoyed your grandchildren mm-hmm. right and you hoped that you would live another 10 years. Right. You know, that's kind of, that was kind of how everybody did it. And now people are living a lot longer mm-hmm. into their 80s, into their 90s, perhaps. Um, and there is so much, what I see in our culture usually, which really I, I find deeply, deeply annoying, is as you said the what what we see is sort of um I don't know archetypes for Mm -hmm. successful aging are typically um good looking older people you know silver foxes and cougars you know and they're living their lives they're traveling and they're in their cars and ultimately what they really are is they're consumers exactly that's exactly what i was just thinking yep they're consumers they are consuming but they're not creating Mm -hmm. kind of like your productive the the productive creative part of your life is over and you are here to do one thing and one thing only and and that is to buy shit yep buy shit go to lectures You, you you turn into kind of a rather passive sort of a a creature and I I find that personally appalling I do too sad I remember I was in Florida Um, my parents used to run to place down there and um I was I was driving with my husband and son to the place where they were staying and along this this like I don't know like kind of a state highway four-lane highway there were like, it was like one golf course after another. And I told my husband, you know, if I retire and the only thing available to me is playing golf, I think I will kill myself. Mm-hmm. It just, it just felt like my thinking is if you are, if, if you are happy playing golf all day, 
and like you feel really, really, really super fulfilled, then God bless you. Mm -hmm. Spend the rest of your life playing golf. Have have fun. Enjoy, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I, I can't even imagine doing that. Um, I am a creator and a maker and I I just it would be unbearable. Yeah, I, I feel similarly. I have a friend who loves to play golf. She would do it all the time if she could, and she does it as much as she can now. Yeah. And so she's the perfect person for that. But that's yeah. not me. It sounds like it's not you either. No, no, not at all. I think the other piece too that happens is people get frozen mm -hmm. in their their development as mm -hmm. human beings and I think having I have gone to places um like Santa Fe where there are still gangs of mean girls who are in their 70s going to galleries mm. and and not to say like they're out and out mean girls or they're or they're 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 horrible but they definitely have attitude mm -hmm. and and they're very aware of status and they're very aware of their appearance and i think to myself you know when you were in your 20s and your sorority that's okay yeah. you know because that's you're you're figuring out who you are yeah. but it makes me feel deeply sad that you could be 60 or 70 years old and you are still pretty frozen into that person who was in a sorority, got married, had kids, retired, and now you're you're hanging out with girls just or women just like you. Yeah. And, and probably worried about their weight, which is my other very worried pain. about their weight. Yeah. Worried about yeah. their weight, worried about their health, exercising, going to yoga, doing all of those things. And again, no. nothing wrong with Pilates or yoga. No, Good. no, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your health either. But God, it just presses me when I hear from women who are 78, 80 years old that they're yeah. still worried about their weight. Worried about they want to be size zero. Yeah. And if they're not, you know, it's anyway, we could go on and on. I know. I don't want to I keep know. going. It's kind of depressing, right? Um, that's right. Not, clearly, that's not where we want to go. And it's not where I know no, your clients I want to go. Totally different vision for how I see <laughs> what I see is possible for women at this stage of life and for men too, but it's just, that I'm focused on the women because I happen to be a woman and I will primarily work with women, but I would love to hear what somebody, you know, somebody's working with men around this has to say, because I think it, there's like what you said, that old retirement that like, you know, you put on your slippers and you get in your recliner and that's it. Like there's so much more. I know. And you know, I like being in my slippers. Me too. Watching TV. I actually really like that, yeah. but I only like doing that like at the end of the day. You know, um, I, I think that there is a very rich, like, I don't know if it's one niche or multiple niches to create what I think of as being like elders of the generation. Yes. And I, I think agree. there is a hunger. I mean, we have all these baby boomers retiring right now. And I think that there's a real hunger among people who are aging to have role models who can help them create a sense of meaning and purpose and, and, and not in a superficial way. I agree. I think yeah. because we're such a youth obsessed culture, we are missing out on elderhood totally. and the gifts that are available when we allow people to become elders and revere them as such, you know, to, exactly. to look at their, what they have to offer 
and to appreciate it and respect it and turn to it. I think, so I think too, Laura, I think the challenge also is because we are in a very capitalistic mm -hmm. um, culture. Um, so being a consumer really is almost part of our identity as Americans or as people living in sort of, I guess, you know, beyond industrialized countries at this point is that I, I, I can't help it, but think to myself <laughs> that, well, maybe it's like all things, right? Like all movements, there will be, there will be a thread of people who are doing it from a more spiritually holistically rooted manner and then there will be a whole bunch of other people who are get talking about quick fixes and maybe mm -hmm. that's just where it'll go yeah i think it'll be interesting to see like over time there and we we're a society that's really geared toward quick fixes in lots of ways you know we want want what we want now we're yes. not very good at delayed gratification i think that can shift I really think that can, but it does take some time. And I think it's... it needs, I mean, I think it needs to because. Oh, I agree. I, I think it's really hard to be happy. Like, because we have, we have all of this technology mm -hmm. that puts so much at our fingertips. Yes. And so we're so used to our needs for information or to buy something or have something delivered. You know, we're, we get that. Yes. But 200 years ago, most most of the United States, we they were farmers. We were farmers. We were growing things. And growing things is not a quick fix. No. Well, you can't cram on the farm. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work that way. You know, like when students yeah. cram for an exam. Yeah. It doesn't yeah, can't do that on not. a farm. No. Which is why I like that metaphor so much. Yeah. So we were we were talking about identity again. Mm -hmm. And um I just I wanted to ask like how what what kinds of things do you do? Like what and you were talking about the I am statement, which mm -hmm. is a start, but how do you help people? I'm, I'm seeing myself in this, of course, but mm -hmm. like, how do you, how do you help people? How do you challenge them or push them to move more towards what they are aspiring to? Part of it, a big part of it really is helping women get in touch with their own power helping them see where they've had experienced power in the past, which isn't always how, I mean, we tend to think of it in that sort of like, um, I'm in charge, yes. you know? Like, yes, yes, but, exactly. But that's not always how it looks. I often ask women to identify times in their lives where they felt clear and knowing and knew what to do and felt like strong, like, you know, like it was, and, and often it's in an emergency or a crisis that this happens, but not always. Um, and to really think about how that felt in their bodies and mm. what they were capable of. Maybe they did something they didn't think they were capable of. So mm. we often, yeah. we spend a lot of time talking about that, like identifying those moments, because it, when you can remember feeling it, right. And it's so much more, it's easier to create it now. Cause to my way of thinking, that's the real you. It's like that person who shows up and handles whatever it is in front of you in a way that you didn't think was possible before like that's you that's mm -hmm. and we can tap into that now so that's that's right. another important piece of it is that because we tend to think of it as like oh that was just that time that was a crisis then I went back to being me <laughs> you know but I don't really see it that way 
I, you know, like I agree with you. I, um, I think too that we have, I, I often think of this as sort of my perfectionist monster or my perfectionist is pretty, or inner critic. Mm -hmm. it, it's actually the same, the same monster, just different sides of the monster. But that monster is really powerful. And I know that when I do things that are challenging for me, that monster rears its head and mm. just goes bonkers. Um, and I assume this is something your clients also struggle with. Yeah, definitely. People struggle with the inner critic for sure. I think that it isn't always the case, though, that when like when they've surmounted something they didn't think they could surmount. Mm -hmm. Sometimes after the fact, then the inner critic does show up a little, you know, to like sort of, well, you didn't really do that or you had a helping hand or, you know, whatever in a kind of a dismissive tone. But I think when people are actually in the moment, mm -hmm. like in the actual <laughs> moment when the thing is happening, mm -hmm. often the inner critic is shut down because they're so laser focused on what they need to do and what they need to accomplish or what's right in front of them. Interesting. Very, very interesting. <laughs> Okay. Well, I could, there's so much more I could, I could talk about this particular topic. Yeah. I have such a active inner critic. Um, what, what, what have we not covered, Laura, that, that you would like to cover? Is there, are there other topics that you would like to talk about? I guess I really just want to say it's sort of cliche, but People often, when they come to me in the first session, they're kind of convinced it's too late. Yeah, for sure. Because they don't see the role models and they don't. And like we talked about at the very beginning, they're not, people aren't talking about the situation. Like they don't realize almost everybody else is going through the same thing because nobody's yeah. talking about it. And so yeah. I really encourage people to talk to, to find a safe friend to talk to, to start to share, like start small. Don't you know, jump into like, you know, I've, I've got $30,000 in debt or whatever, like, but start small, yeah. talk about things related to money, start to ease into it a little bit. So it becomes more normal because that helps you feel like there's some, you can make some growth on your own. Like that's a place to start. And it's, and it helps you to realize it's not too late because you can make changes here and now around those issues, especially if you can find a friend or two to talk to about them and who want to work on it together. Mm. You know, I love the idea. And I, I think it's like, we talked about community mm -hmm. of women, like we had consciousness raising in the sixties, you know, yeah. and yes, I love the idea of financial consciousness raising mm. where women are talking to each other about their money. It sounds like there, there are some potentially fun and interesting, um, opportunities out there to uh whether I, i'm thinking from a content perspective of mm -hmm. uh books or i don't know um i think you should be on um i don't i don't know if oprah or ellen are still doing talk shows but i think you should be uh there should be a talk show you should be on thank you that would be fun i don't know if they are either that's a good question <laughs> yeah uh yeah i don't i don't know but um I, I i just think that there's a kind of a playful way to come at it um kind of like you know the secret that no woman dares to speak <laughs> you know, i totally agree right i totally like agree kind of fun and playful um 
And, you know, I mean, I could see it being, it, it could become a movement mm -hmm. with, with the good and bad that come, come with having a movement. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I also encourage people to, to make friends with people of all ages too, because yes. I think that's a, another yes. way that we see that growth doesn't stop. Yeah. Like, agreed. Totally agreed. Wow. Yeah. So I guess those are the two things I would just sort of leave people with at the end of our conversation here. So subversive. I know. Right? <laughs> but I love being subversive. I, Me too. I, I think it's, um, I, I think being so you can be subversive in a playful way. Yep. Um, and uh, I, I see it as poking the bear just enough to bug the bear, but not enough to like have the bear, you know, bite your head off. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway, Laura, it's, it's I, I, I love talking to you. It is so, so much. It is so fun to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a joy and it's gone so fast. <laughs> Thank so, you so much. Um, I would like, I, I just want to encourage anybody who's listening, if some of the things that Laura has, or what we've been talking about are, um, you know, sort of like, you know, bringing up like things for you, um, Laura is a coach and she is, you are available, right? I am. I okay. Am. I have spaces <laughs> for two clients right now. Okay. So how, if somebody is, feels moved to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do it? I don't have a website. Um, I do have a landing page. I don't have a website, but people usually find me on LinkedIn if they're struggling to, like okay. if somebody, they hear my name and they Google it, they can find me on LinkedIn because my name is unusual. Thanks to my husband. And we hyphenated when we got married. I think that's um, really so cool. Yeah. So that's okay. an easy way to find me. I will, when I, I will create a blog post. And when I do that, I will include your LinkedIn information so people can find you. Great. And, and maybe the landing page too. That would be great. I think I sent it to you. And if not, I can. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure you did. And I will include that as well. And Terrific. honestly, you know, although I, I teach marketing, I, there is something about when I talk to someone who has been successful and they're not doing all the marketing that they're told they should be doing. There is a little part of me that feels gleeful. <laughs> I love that because I do too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the reason, the reason why is because I also think that when we really embody what we do, mm -hmm. because I know that that is something that I don't like to say that you worked on, but I have. <laughs> But it's something you and it's something you value, yes, greatly. And um, I think there is an inside out portion of getting to where you want to be that um, really requires us to embody and change. You know, really to rework our change our identity and rework mm -hmm. it. So. Um, I, I just like that. That makes me happy because I, I do think that who we are and how we show up and the presence we bring into the world, it, that's usually the most powerful thing we have I as agree. a quote unquote marketing tool. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. Go sister. Thanks, right. Judy. Thank you so much. Love Thank it. you so much, Laura. This was a blast. Thank you. Really fun. <laughs>